this is Tech Refactored. I'm your host, Gus Hurwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center at the University of Nebraska. Today, we're joined by Brent Skorup, Senior Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Brent's research areas include transportation technology, telecommunications, aviation, and wireless policy. Today we're going to be uh, looking into Brent's work on the legal history of the often pretty controversial Section 230. For a brief uh, bit of context here, Section 230 is part of the uh, Communications Decency Act, which generally is understood to provide pretty broad immunity for website platforms and other online platforms when it comes to content that is posted by their users or other third parties. And we're going to put a, a lot more meat onto those bones over the course of this discussion, I am sure. Brent, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Gus. Okay, let's uh, just jump straight in. Uh, I am sure this isn't going to be at all a controversial conversation because nothing about Section 230 uh, is controversial. Um, We, over the course of this conversation, will be using this term, Section 230, quite a bit. So can we just start um, with you explaining what the heck Section 230 is? Sure. And and this is a very hot topic. I've given some talks at, at law schools and universities recently, and, and I've heard from professors, a lot of students are writing about Section 230. It's, it's a really hot topic in uh, just the news, but also in, in the legal community. And I was uh, lucky enough to have written uh, pretty extensively about this topic a few years ago, and now now it's a very popular topic. So I'm, I'm uh, yeah, happy, happy, happy to discuss. Um, so Section 230, it, probably today many people, you know, it's often um, uh, denigrated, it's often mischaracterized, and, and probably many people today are not too familiar with the, the history and the background for it. But it's it's a law, as you said, that provides a pretty broad liability shield to internet-based companies of, of all kinds. Uh, it's, it's pretty broadly worded, and it was part of the 1996 Telecom Act, as, as you said, in 1996, it didn't get much attention. Uh, internet, frankly, was a bit of an afterthought in, in the 1996 Telecom Act, which was really focused on reforming telephone laws and competition. But it was part of that act, and it was just a coincidence uh, in timing that you had uh, the web was starting to commercialize. People were starting to hop online. And and in the 90s, you had these these early... I guess you could call them social social networks uh, called bulletin boards, where people would post um, you know, pseudonymous, anonymous comments uh, on these bulletin boards, which were virtual bulletin boards and communities. And back in the uh, this time frame, some of those were internet style services. There was a internet at the time, but it was nothing like the modern internet. But a lot of these were uh, smaller uh, communities that you would use uh, modems to connect to online services, either run by individuals with tens or hundreds of users. Um, And then there were things like Prodigy and CompuServe that were kind of the the pre-internet online communities that you could uh, uh, connect to, right? That's right. And in, I think it was 1991 when the, the Cubby versus CompuServe uh, case came down. So this this was litigation um, on, on one of these bulletin boards. There was a defamatory comment posted, and 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 the person who was uh, defamed or believed he was defamed sued Cubby, the the bulletin board operator, for distributing uh, this content. And and the, the law was 
somewhat shifting at the time, but but there was a legal theory that you would hold uh, distributors of tortious comment of uh, content of defamatory content liable. Um, so th- this person sued, believed it had been defamed on on this bulletin board, sued the bulletin board operator. But a court took a look at it and and on practical and I think free speech reasons said we can't really expect these these early uh, uh, technology companies to be uh, reviewing all, all these comments. I mean there, there's you know the internet was not huge at the time, uh, but there was a lot of growth and and, and the court said we're, we're not going to hold this distributor uh, of content liable. You had almost the exact same fact pattern a few years later in the Stratton Oakmont case. A uh, bulletin board operator, uh, someone posted a, a defamatory com- uh, comment. Um, someone sued uh, Prodigy, the, the bulletin board host and operator. Although this time the court rever- uh, uh, went, went in the opposite direction. It was a different, different court. This is New York State Court. And said that the bulletin board operator can be liable and is liable in this case for, for the defamation posted by its users. Um, and about that time, uh, the Telecom Act was coming, and and uh, some some early tech companies went to Congress and and said this, this is crazy. We're we're going to be liable for all what users post, and uh, you know, and they they were faced with with a, a problem. Um, you could either review all types of content and take down what you believe might be illegal or tortious or copyright material, or you could just leave everything up. And not take anything down, and that that was what um, uh, web companies, at least in the state of New York, believe they were facing um, uh, with with this Stratton Oak, Oakmont case. So Congress stepped in. So real real quick, just to make sure that we're let, let's paint a word picture. Um, uh, uh, I in the real world, not offline, uh, not online. I say something that is defamatory, something that is harmful to your reputation. Um, you suffer injury as a result. Your reputation is injured. You lose your job, whatever uh, it requires for it to be defamatory. You can sue me. So instead of uh, uh, running into uh, the office cafeteria and shouting this thing about you and everyone hears, I post it online. Um, and the uh, there's no question that I could still be held liable for uh, defamation if what I had said about you was in fact defamatory, and I say that online. The question is whether the platform on which I am posting this material uh, could also be held uh, liable for having distributed my words to the people receiving them, um, even though it's kind of the uh, same thing as if I've run into the cafeteria and shout it because the platform is playing some active role. They're not like a cafeteria. They're more like a newspaper reprinting or distributing what I've said. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, that's, um, I, I should say that the case law around defamation and distrib- dis, uh, distributor liability is, is somewhat confused and it depends on, on the jurisdiction. We, we uh, my, my co-author, Jennifer Huddleston and I, in our, our piece about Section 230 and, and distributor liability, uh, note that courts are, are kind of all over the place. Sometimes they hold someone liable. Sometimes they don't. Um, there, there was a case of, uh, I believe in the 60s, someone wrote a defamation, something embarrassing on bathroom stalls in a tavern. 
and and the court in that case held the tavern operator liable uh, for not removing it. Um, and I, I don't know the exact facts. You know, perhaps they removed some some notes on these bathroom stall doors at the tavern, not others. But but um, but yeah, in, in some cases you can be held liable if you merely distribute. So what you're what you're highlighting there is there's a, a role of changing technology and different technologies. You've got the I tell one other person this thing about you. I go into the auditorium and I announce it using an amplification system. I write it on uh, the I graffiti the wall of a building. I graffiti a stall in a restroom, a public restroom where there might be someone who's able to clean it. I post it in a newspaper. I post it online. These are all different ways of my defaming you, but those different ways have some intermediary that exists and has some more or less ability to control what's going on. That's right. And and say 120 years ago, uh, defamation and distribution liability was uh, much like strict liability. Um, it, uh, over decades, courts have gotten more and more permissive and protected intermediaries of all kinds more and more and, and, and said there, there must be some fault as a distributor before we're, we're not going to hold you strictly liable. Generally speaking, there's got to be some fault um, uh, before you can hold a distributor liable. Um, but uh, but so and anyways, this this is the context in which Congress was acting in in the mid 90s, where you had these these two court cases against these early Internet companies, one saying they're not liable, one saying they are. So Congress stepped in uh, to clarify the law and, and, and passed Section 230, which again is, is this broad liability shield for internet-based companies, and said, "Look, um, we, we don't we don't want you to leave everything up because all kinds of content would, would be left up. It would it would pollute the internet. But we also don't want to hold every company, uh, particularly you know in the mid '90s, these small um, this nascent in- industry. We we don't want to have." force them to review all comments um, and make on-the-spot decisions about whether it's defamation or or libel or, or copyright violations and so forth. So um, you can take down content if you wish, or you can leave it up and, and you won't be liable one way or the other. You can kind of create the community that, that you want to create um, and you won't be treated as a publisher. Um, you won't be liable as a publisher for, for what you choose to, to leave up. And there's a, a detail in there that I think we I should pull out. Um, you are free to moderate the content. The, the key there is uh, some courts previously have said, look, if you're if you aren't moderating content, that's fine. You're you're not actively making decisions, so you're not subject to liability. But once you decide to moderate some content, you've demonstrated you have an interest and ability to do this. So now, if you fail to moderate content, you've created a duty to continue doing that. And one of the things Section Two Thirty does is it says, no, you can selectively moderate. You can moderate some content, and that isn't going to create an ongoing duty to do so perfectly in all cases. Yeah, that's right. You you can you can choose to moderate or choose not to, and and you will still not be held liable as a publisher. We're 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 still uh, getting what Section two thirty is on the table. Um, I'd like to uh, uh, get two things into the discussion. Um, first, simply, why are we talking about Section two thirty? Um, as you mentioned, it it kind of was just 
a thing that happened in the uh, Telecommunications Act of 1996. It wasn't viewed as a big deal, but today it's kind of a really big deal. Um, so I, I like to uh, get your take on why it is such a big deal today, but then also go back to your research of uh, how these areas of law were developing prior to Section 230 um, to get your take on, is it actually that big a deal? Yeah, why, why is it a big deal? Section 230 has been injected into uh, U.S. politics in, in a big way. This began a few years ago, um, but I, I think President Trump tweeting about it, like a lot of things, uh, really, really uh, uh, made it a, a, a front page news story, this kind of obscure law in, in a 25-year-old statute. Uh, President Trump you know, has tweeted and, and many, many of his uh, followers and, and, and supporters have tweeted to repeal Section 230. Um, but I, I should add, uh, in, in a New York Times article in the lead up to the last election, Joe Biden said one of his first jobs as president, uh, one of his first priorities would be revoking Section 230 to, to tech companies. So you, you had this unique circumstance where both, both uh, presidential candidates had, had had urged repeal of Section 230. And, and, and presumably for the same reason? Uh, as you can imagine, uh, th there's not too much overlap on, on their reasons uh, for, and, and Republicans, many Republicans have taken up uh, this charge and many Democrats have taken up this charge of, of revoking or, or modifying Section 230. As, as someone who's studied the law and, and media law, I would, I would say Democrats have a better understanding of what would happen if, if you repealed or, or modified Section 230, although I think both sides um, uh, misunderstand the history of, of publisher liability and, and constitutional law. Um, so both, and, and part of, underlying a lot of this, I mean, political parties are, are big fact. I mean, there are a lot of factions, right? I, I think part of it, and perhaps the most generous interpretation of the repeal or modify Section 230 movement is, is this view that, okay, this liability protection, it was made in 1996 for, to protect this, this brand new industry of, of web companies. Today, it's, it's protecting Facebook, Google, Apple, uh, Twitter, and, and others, mo most of these, uh, some of the biggest companies in, in the world. And, and this liability protection doesn't make sense anymore. That, that's a generous interpretation. I think a lot of it is much more political. It's tech companies love this law. We dislike tech companies, therefore we, we dislike this law. But, um, but there are various factions and there are, are various uh, nuanced views on this. But I think that's probably the most generous uh, view, which is, it made sense in the 1990s when you when you had these uh, this uncertainty and you had this new industry, but it no longer makes sense today. And are either of those takes correct? Did it really make sense in the 1990s, and does it really no longer make sense today? And I, I can flesh that out if you'd like. Um, in in the early in the 1990s. Um, could the common law have continued to develop and legal institutions have continued to develop to address these concerns without congressional intervention? Um, uh, and today, uh, if we were to revoke and undo or change, modify Section 230, what would the effects be? 
Uh, and obviously that depends on how we uh, modify it. Yeah, as, as I said, I, I think I think Democrats have a more accurate view, at least in the short term, of what would happen if you repealed Section 230. So let's, let's imagine for a moment. And I should say I don't view this as an imminent um, possibility, frankly, I, uh, partly because the, the parties, even though they might have misgivings or dislike Section 230, they, they dislike it for very different reasons. Um, but, but suppose you did get rid of this liability shield for, for tech companies. In, in the short term, you would see a, a lot more takedown of content um, of, of all kinds. Uh, anything that a tech company believed they might be liable for, uh, they would just err on the side of take it down um, uh, and, and be done with it. So, so we don't, so we don't get sued. So we don't get, so we're not held liable. Um, and, and, and this usually when Democrats speak of it, this is kind of what they intend. They, they, they want, uh, tech companies, uh, uh, from their point of view, be, be more responsible and take, take down more, uh, disinformation and misinformation and, and other types of harmful content. Um, so I, I think, I think Democrats have a clear vision of, of what would happen in the short term. In, in the long term, though, I think what would happen, and, and we, we make the case in uh, Jennifer Halston and I in, in our, our law article on this topic, is that in, in the long term, I think courts would develop uh, standards and, and, and legal rules that would look a lot like Section 230. In particular, it, it would look a lot like conduit liability, which is the type of liability you have for uh, phone companies and uh, telegraph companies, where generally they're, they're not they're not liable for what's distributed, even if they know what's being distributed might be defamatory or or or, or otherwise illegal. Um, and we we trace the history. I should again. I want, I want to emphasize: courts were not um, all all on all in march step on this. Uh, the decisions, quite frankly, are all over the place. But there is a trend towards uh, requiring more fault in distributors. Than previous, and and there is a trend to opening opening up this conduit liability beyond just telegraph and phone companies, but opening up to to wire services, uh, and then eventually um, to to traditional publishers. There there was a there was a case I believe in the '80s, a def- defamation case against the AP and, and Newsweek and some others, um, uh, but a court held that that uh, these publishers, including Newsweek, were not liable for for the uh, alleged defamation in in the news story. The, the interesting thing about this case is that uh, th- this was not simply republishing a wire service. This was original reporting based on a wire service, um, uh, and, and still Newsweek w- was not liable for for that. Well, we uh, let, let's uh, take a pause for a moment um, for our listeners. We're about to go through a tunnel, which is kind of like a conduit, and we will see you on the other side uh, to have some more discussion of uh, conduits, social media liability, evolving First Amendment standards, and oddly enough, we will uh, uh, add into our discussion some discussion of censorship. Usually when we talk censorship, we're taking things off the table for discussion. So see you on the other side of this tunnel. I'm Morgan Armstrong, a student fellow at the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center and part of the Space Cyber and Telecommunications Law Program at the University of Nebraska. Did you know the University of Nebraska College of Law also has a Space Cyber and Telecommunications Law Program that started in 2008? The program features tracks for law students and advanced degrees for established attorneys. 
Interested in satellites, international law, radio spectrum, or just about anything in the great expanse of space? Check them out on Twitter at Space Cyber Law. Now back to this episode of Tech Refactored. So as we uh, come back to our discussion, I want to take a brief moment to remind our listeners that we enjoy hearing from you. Uh, we would love it if you have ideas for topics for future discussions. Please go to our website or tweet us at UNL underscore NGTC or directly at me at, at Gus Hurwitz. And we uh, look forward to incorporating some of those into future episode topics. We are back now talking with Brent Skorup about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Um, and I am just being entirely selfish today because there is nothing more that I enjoy talking about than uh, the uh, evolution of First Amendment law in light of changing technologies. So we're just going whole hog into this legal history discussion. Uh, and you listeners are uh, just along for the ride today. Uh, so Brent, uh, we were talking uh, a bit about some of the uh, evolution and development in this area of the law before the break. Um, uh, how do you think the law would have continued to change if Congress hadn't stepped in? I think it would have developed in time uh, to resemble something resembling, or it would resemble conduit protection or, or Section 230. I mean, there, there's a lot of overlap there. As I said, the courts were starting to protect traditional publishers uh, in this way, and, and they were not liable unless they directly uh, made the defamatory statement or, or, or illegal statement. What, what did the standard that the courts were developing look like? It, it's not no liability. It's not uh, strict liability. Um, do you have a sense of what uh, courts were starting to look at? It, it, uh, again, courts, courts were all in place. There, there was, um, in some cases, they, they just looked for some elements of, of fault in, in others, uh, they might, like like you mentioned earlier, if, if you were capable and had curated or edited content in the past, you, you were expected to always do that. Um, and they, they kind of, there were these different protections. Um, there was wire service defense uh, for that was exclusively for wire service providers uh, like the AP and uh, or the Associated Press. Um, but it got broadened to include other 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 types of non non providers and and, and to include publications. Um, and th there was a case that that expressly expanded conduit liability, uh, the o Oville case, uh, I believe in the nineteen nineties in district court in, in Washington. Um, and this was, I believe, a sixty minutes episode that uh, alleged that apple growers. In, we're, we're using pesticides uh, in, in their apples and, um, you know, any, anything touching apple growing in Washington State is, is a big deal. They sued their local TV station for for this defamation. The court in the Oville case, this, this Washington Apple case, had an analysis, and this is pre-Section 230, but an analysis that looked uh, exactly like what, what you find uh, with, with the motivation for Section 230. They said... Yes, TV broadcasters uh, transmit all types of content. Yes, they do kill stories, but we can't expect them to 
review every single statement or preview every single statement of every program that they contract for, it would it would just be a, a, a huge nightmare, just practical nightmare and constitutional nightmare to have to hire lawyers to re- review all this content or be subject to massive uh, litigation and defamation cases. Um, and you had you had a few other, and they said we're, we're we're expanding conduit liability to include broadcasters. And you had, you had a few other cases, broadcast cases. Um, and mind you, this is all pre Section two thirty. Um, and, and there were some other early internet cases expanding conduit liability. So, um, in short, courts uh, were generally moving in the direction of expanding conduit liability, and they were doing this for for two reasons. Uh, again, practical reasons, just about. Uh, in with new technology, whether broadcast radio or or the internet, just the impractical impractical burden of having to review all types of content, and a related factor were constitutional arguments that um, this this would you'd be in constant litigation over the speech that you're transmitting, and it would lead distributors to pull down uh, preemptively all kinds of content, and for courts, that's um, that's that's a, a constitutional problem. If if you have uh, uh, laws that are uh, causing news distributors uh, to to re- remove preemptively all, all kinds of speech for fear of litigation, so, so there, there's something fascinating in here that uh, you, you've touched on a couple of times, and I just want to uh, be sure that we draw this out. Um, you, you've touched on the concern that. Uh, defamation liability or whatever liability um, platforms, publishers, distributors could face for speech that they're hosting or distributing from third parties, if that has the effect of stifling speech, the courts might find that problematic. Um, and you've mentioned so uh, in invoking constitutional concerns, uh, at least uh, two times that you've mentioned this. One, the idea that if uh, platforms need to uh, engage with lawyers at a crushing level to, uh, to the point that they're just going to stop hosting speech, that that's constitutionally problematic. Um, and then uh, uh, in the last point that you made. Um, so what, what's the, I, I think there's, there's a really nice First Amendment point here that uh, folks tend not to focus on in these discussions. Um, what, what I'll, I'll just ask, what is the First Amendment valence of Section 230 and these speech concerns more generally? Section 230, in a lot of ways, codifies this kind of uh, this legal movement to expanding conduit liability and, and liability protection to traditional publishers. I, I think a lot of what's driving this, there, there was the, the Smith case, a Supreme Court case in 1959, uh, where, where the Supreme Court said you cannot hold distributors strictly liable for illegal content. I, I believe a city... Was making book bookstores strictly liable if they had obscene content in, in their books, and and the court said you 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 can't hold them strictly liable. You, and again, very similar justification for for what the court said, which was you can't expect bookstore owners to review every single page of every single book. Um, holding them strictly liable uh, is, is unconstitutional. There's got to be some kind of fault, um, and it's that that mandate from the Supreme Court. There must be some kind of fault. Before you can hold them liable, that it is driving this this move towards conduit liability in, in Section two thirty. Now, I I think and and I've I've heard some people take uh, my argument and in my paper and and people who might adopt it 
and say, well, that means we don't we don't need Section 230. It's it's redundant anyways. Um, I, I'm not sure that's quite true. I mean, one, I, I think there was a benefit to passing Section 230 in the 1990s uh, when, he, when he did have this this uncertainty and you you had new companies. And I, I think there's a benefit today. I mean, just, um, just you know, again, certainty, but also, um, you know, you can, if I've persuaded you, you know, there might be a common law solution to this. The common law takes decades, centuries to, um, to, to get a, a fixed standard. So um, it, 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 it probably doesn't make sense to uh, repeal Section 230 with, with the hopes uh, that there will be some uh, judge-created uh, policy that, that has uh, the same effect. I should uh, just explain for listeners who might not be familiar with the, the concept of the common law. Um, the This is the idea that uh, the law forms over a period of time as individual courts and judges make a series of decisions. And some of those ju- uh, some of the decisions judges make are going to lead to good results. And over time, they'll tend to stand and be improved upon and modified and incorporated into the law. And over time, judges will make bad decisions and those will be reversed by legislatures or other judges who recognize, hey, this this idea had a problem. So over a period of uh, hundreds or thousands of individual decisions in tens or hundreds of jurisdictions, we start to get a coherent body of law. And that's how much of our law has formed. It takes a long time sometimes, um, not always. Uh, and it uh, really stands in uh, contrast to the idea that a legislature might just say, this is what the law is, and they'll have some hearings and maybe investigate for a couple of, uh, maybe a couple of years, sometimes a couple of hours, and say, this is what the new law is. Um, and that's very sticky and very hard to change um, and uh, a very different approach to uh, developing new laws and legal norms. Yeah, and, and just, just to wrap this up, uh, you know this 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 topic. Um, I uh, yeah I think you, there's a lot of politics around it, and you don't always get clarity and clear motivations when it, when it comes to politics. But I, I think both both sides misunderstand uh, the the history of Section 230 and 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 the the law here, the relevant law, and and the trends in the law. Um, because if if they did, I, I think it would really um, depressurize these discussions and and. Um, so I guess I'm a, a faint-hearted defender of Section 230. I I, uh, I believe it it serves a, a, a good purpose, uh, generally speaking. Um, it's but but it's it's also not the word of God handed down to man. Uh, it's uh, uh, there are um, areas of it that could use um, inquiry and and study from academics and and, and judges. Um, but uh, but it's it's really taken on this. Um, this focus from politicians, I, I think, is really undeserved. So the the last thing that we should touch on, for better or worse, is uh, the topic of censorship. Um, and uh, I'll just ask, is uh, Section 230, uh, I'll, I'll ask it this way, is Section 230 pro or anti-censorship or both? Section 230 gives companies uh internet companies and, and their communities the the freedom to decide whether whether they can be pro censorship or, or or pro free speech and online of course you see that i mean there's there's all kinds of communities that choose all, all different types of of uh, what what to censor um you know more on the, on the more laissez-faire 
you know, it would be a, a website like uh, 4chan, um, you know, that, that really doesn't take down too much content. And there's a lot of uh, uh, discussing content on there. Um, on, on the other side, you've got, you know, Facebook, which, you know, intentionally is trying to create a, a safe uh, social network where children and grandparents and, and parents can can enjoy to be. And that means removing a, a lot of content, um, uh, uh, you know, pornography and animal abuse and, and, and racism and hate speech. Um, uh, so, and Section 230 protects both, um, you know, both ends of the spectrum. You, you can take a hands-off approach or you can take a, a fairly intrusive approach about what you'll allow. Um, not to mention, you know, openly, you know, partisan sites that, you know, won't, won't tolerate other, other viewpoints. Um, and so I, I, I think, I, I think there, there's a, a good balance struck with that. Yeah. So the, the distinction or the, the question of censorship and Section 230 is, uh, it, it's a hot topic and something that we uh, debate and discuss a great deal, but it, it's really the wrong question because, Section 230 is about empowering private platforms to do stuff, and we call that moderation. Uh, what's the difference between censorship and moderation? Well, censorship tends to be government-compelled moderation. So the, it's the government deciding what content can or can't uh, be posted uh, or hosted. Uh, so uh, as hard as it is at times to believe, both legitimately and illegitimately, I say this uh, somewhat facetiously, Facebook is not the government. They are really big, but uh, when they're making moderation decisions, uh, they are making moderations decisions and they're taking corporate risk and they're uh, uh, instantiating their own corporate values. And it's really hard if you believe, for instance, uh, that we should have, we should be able to have platforms that uh, support socially valuable causes. Well, we need to allow them to make content moderation decisions in order to do that. And you can't allow that for some, but not for others. Uh, 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 without risking both. Okay, well, uh, any, I'm, I'm confident that uh, the discussion about Section 230 is going, uh, not going away, I almost said is going nowhere. Um, I, I think that that might have been a, a bit of a, a Freudian slip, but uh, I'm sure that it's uh, not going away. Any uh, last thoughts uh, for our listeners um, to uh, take with them as they uh, go out into the world and encounter Section, section 230? Well, I encourage you, if you'd like to learn more, if something I said uh, was intriguing, you, you can you can read uh, my law article in, in Oklahoma Law Review in 2020 with uh, Jennifer Huddleston about the erosion of, of publisher liability in American law. Okay. Well, thank you, uh, Brent Scorp, for joining us today. Um, I have been your host, Gus Hurwitz. Thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of Tech Refactored. If you want to learn more about what we're doing here at the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center or submit an idea for a future episode, you can go to our website at ngtc.unl.edu or you can follow us on Twitter at UNL underscore NGTC. If you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our show is produced by Elspeth Magilton and Lysandra Marquez and Colin McCarthy created and recorded our theme music. This podcast is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series. Until next time, keep moderating well.